Some of you won't know uh, because uh, John is uh, often out preaching elsewhere, but John used to lead the team here. Uh, he is a good friend. He's a great speaker. And so John's going to come and bring God's word to us. Let's give him a really big hand. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And it is great to be here with you uh, sharing the word of God this morning. And um, what a great thing that cap is. Just every time I, I think, what I love about it is it so molds together the words as well as the works. You know, the works of kindness and help and practical help, but the words of Jesus and the gospel in there as well. Very authentically well done. Keep going. It's brilliant. Um, we're going to be looking at a passage in Luke 4. This is in our series. Uh, which started a few weeks ago, series going through Luke, and we're going to look at the first 14 verses, 15 actually, of Luke 4. A fairly well-known section of Scripture, the temptations of Jesus, um, but I believe these are packed with truth for, for you this morning. My really sincere prayer is that everybody gets something from this this morning. However long you've been a Christian, whether you're not yet a Christian, that God will speak to you and bless you, feed you, and I, I hope change you just from this morning, because that's what the Word of God does. Let's read from verse 1 of Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live by bread alone, but on every word of God. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it's been given over to me and I will give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues and being praised by everyone. Now this was perhaps one of the most testing few weeks in Jesus' life prior to the last week or two, building up to the cross. There were plenty of other challenges for him, but this is a very testing time for Jesus. And I, I think there's a lot for us to learn, so we'll just briefly pray that God will help us and help me, really, as we look at these verses. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word today. Holy Spirit, come on this word and minister it into our hearts, into our spirits, I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. 
Now, even as we read it, there needs to be a little bit of explanation, uh, a little bit of introduction, if you like. The original language carries a sense that we don't quite get in our English, that the temptation went on throughout the 40 days. So it's not like there was 40 days of fasting, and at the end there were three, bang, 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 just at the end. There is a sense that Jesus was under temptation and pressure from the devil throughout the 40 days. So the three incidents may be climactic towards the end, or they may be sometimes a bit of a summary. But this comes in context just after a real high spot in Jesus' life. Amazing. And that's in chapter 3. We had some reference to it last week where John the Baptist proclaims him. It's not all in Luke's gospel, this bit, but he proclaims Jesus the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. It's in one of the other gospels. He proclaims him the Messiah. He, he, he John the Baptist, who is the go-to figure spiritually and religiously at that time, this great prophet, really says, this man is far greater than me. I'm not even worthy to undo his sandals. There's a, a, a wonderful human um, promotion of Jesus, an announcement of him. And that is quickly followed, almost instantly, you could argue, by a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus is baptized, the father speaks directly and audibly to, the, to the, those standing around, not just to Jesus. And then in the Trinitarian truth of this, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus with a fresh anointing, a fresh infilling, an amazing experience for him. And we find Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, prepared and announced by John, totally encouraged and endorsed by his Father in heaven, and off we go. And immediately, the Holy Spirit leads him into the fierce barren heat of the wilderness and into a ferocious and I do believe prolonged spiritual attack from the devil. So Jesus moves from a period of a, a moment of great honor and glory directly into suffering and conflict and challenge. Now we could spend the rest of the morning on that alone. I won't because <laughs> it's a temptation but the, I will headline it there's a few lessons just in that, almost by way of introduction. I think we've got to understand it will often be our experience, and I speak as a long, now long-standing Christian, been a Christian for many, many, many years, um, about 60. Uh, it will often be our experience that high spots, spiritual high spots, are actually followed by low spots, by challenges. And... In actual fact, if you are doing well and filled with the Spirit and going well, you've got to realize you're probably a growing target for the enemy. And we'll get into that maybe if we've got time <laughs> when we get to talk about the devil a little bit later on. I don't want to give him too much time. But nevertheless, we have to face up we have an enemy. And that enemy is not a fool. There's intelligence behind it. And he will go for situations to bring them down early on. That's quite a characteristic, actually. And here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he gets a ferocious attack right after all these wonderful announcements. There's also something else to notice, headline style. When Jesus ends up in 40 days of real difficulty and trial, 40 days of temptation and pressure and physical 
suffering, really, as he's, he's, he's fasting, he is, did you notice, led by the Spirit into that situation. Jesus has not gone off the rails. He's not gone off and done his own thing. He's not forgotten what he should be doing and all these things. And there's a lesson for us. Hitting a difficulty and a hard time does not mean you've gone wrong. It does not mean you've gone off the rails. You say, I thought God led me. God may well be leading you. Hold your nerve. God does lead you into difficult times. God does lead you into wildernesses. God does lead you into situations that test you, which is what's happening to Jesus. God does. You say, I started this new job. I felt God opened it up. It's been dreadful. I must have got it wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean you've got it wrong. Not at all. It can test your faith. It can, you can learn brilliantly out of it. I've, I've experienced those things over life on a number of occasions. You know you feel God's done the right, you've done the right thing in God. You, you're sure as best you can. You haven't sinned or something. And you think, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Don't think it all hangs on whether it feels good or not. It doesn't all hang on your feelings. Your faith is not rooted in your feelings. It's rooted in God and his word and your endeavor to obey him and follow him. And you can make a quality decision for God and have a very tough time for the next few weeks or months. So be encouraged in a way by what happens here and realize there's something deeper going on. God will lead you through tough times, but he won't always lead you around tough times. And that's what happened here for Jesus. He was led in it and through it. Now, I'd also like to spend a bit longer on this next point, but I, I can't, but I do feel you need to realize it. What we have here is an amazing little insight into the uniqueness of who Jesus was. He was son of God, son of man. Fully God, fully man. Let's just quickly read a few verses in Hebrews. I won't be able to preach them. just want you to look at them to understand who Jesus was. Here's a couple of verses from Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. In these last days, this is God, has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. That's Jesus. Now, the same Jesus... Chapter 2, verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. 
4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus Christ was a unique person. Two natures, fully God, fully man, one person. But he was fully man. He was a human being who was God as well. Now you say, well, I can't understand that. No, nor can I. But the word of God is very clear, and I believe it. And this unique person came to do an incredibly difficult and unique task to benefit you and me And to do that, he had to be like you and me. He had to be a human being. He had to have the limitations. He had to be genuinely and fully human. The Bible sometimes calls him the second Adam, just occasionally. It's like he is a second Adam. And we'll understand that in a few minutes, I hope, a bit better. But he was a crucial figure. He is the the, the, the hinge point of history. He really is. It, it was appropriate, and I would still use these terms, to talk about as history as before Christ and after Christ. That is appropriate, because everything hinges on him. This unique man who completely changed the prospects for you and I. And in doing that, he had to go through what we've just read as part of his preparation. Now, I'm going to ask three questions. I may not get to answer them all because of time. So I'm going to relax and just see how the Holy Spirit leads me. But I'm going to start and see how far I get. These three questions are going to be useful to me, I hope to you, to help you understand what Jesus, who he is, what he's doing, and what that means for us. So my three questions are going to be these. Were these real temptations? What really is sin, in inverted commas, is the devil real? <laughs> Let's start with the first one. Were these real temptations? The question behind, behind that is, if Jesus is who you've just said he is, John, and the Bible says he is, didn't he have a massive advantage over all of us in his ability to resist temptation? Is this in any way valid to say that he can understand my life, he can understand my battles, my temptations? poor, weak sinners like us, what does he know about what it's like? Well, I want to, I hope, correct that mistake by answering that question. Yes, these were real temptations. And actually, the truth is, Jesus experienced something far worse than you or I will ever hope to, or don't hope, will ever fear to experience. He experienced something far worse because what's going on here is at a far deeper level than we would understand. Now, the devil, you see, never really understood the full plan of salvation because it didn't compute in a being who was absolutely soaked in pride. But he realized that Jesus was someone special. He's no fool. He knew the Bible. He also listened to the, and knew what happened when Jesus was born to the angels and others. He heard what John the Baptist said. He heard what was said from heaven. And he knew that this special one, this Messiah, was out to try and 
rob him of his kingdom, the dominion of darkness, and somehow set up the kingdom of God. And so he was determined to bring this to an end at the beginning, nip it in the bud. If I can get this character compromised, get him rebelling against God, just like the first Adam, I've done it. Whatever he's come to do, and however quite he's come to do it, and this was an intelligent foe, so he could work probably quite a lot out, I will stop it in its tracks if he doesn't carry on trusting and obeying his father. We'll see if his father is so happy with him after I finish with him. We'll see if he'll still say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We'll see how well pleased he is when I finished with him. Now that is the motive. And the devil knows how to tempt. He knows how to tempt you. He's no fool. He's been around as this Rolling Stones sang for a long, long time. And he does understand human nature. And he knows what makes us trip up. He also is pretty full, as I've said, of pride. And he knows that he was very successful with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were not inherently biased to sin. They were, if you like, holy in the sense they were. They were pure at the beginning. And he'd managed to trip Adam up when, with one shot one temptation, in a beautiful garden with loads of food and water and other drink, with a beautiful intimate companion, his wife, and all the animals passive and compliant. Now he's got this one guy on his own in a desert, in the wilderness, wild animals that are mentioned in some of the accounts of the Gospels, utterly alone and, and hungry, no food, possibly some form of drink, I suppose, in water, sipping water. But he's got this guy alone, hungry, in a sin-ravished world, not the beauty of Eden. This is a wilderness with wild animals. This should be easy. That is Satan. He's, he, that's how he thinks. And so he came with a confidence and an arrogance and he expected to win. But he didn't. Because Jesus is our champion. Jesus did wonderfully in this. Just compare it to Adam's situation. This was a man. Don't say, oh, he's this under God. It's a man. But the, the pressures were at another level to what Adam had to put up with. And think about temptation itself. We all experience temptation. Now, temptation is at its most, it's sort of maximum pressure before you give in to sin, isn't it? It is. You give in to sin and the pressure's gone. Now, you might start feeling guilty. That's a different problem. Temptation is not sin. Just hear that as a side point. Temptation is not sin. You don't feel guilty for being tempted. Jesus was tempted. The guilt comes with the sin. But if we use an analogy of like turning the power up, like a, cranking it up, the devil cranked this to maximum and Jesus didn't give in. He knows more about resisting temptation than you could even think you know. Jesus went through something beyond your understanding, and I say that with respect, whatever your life has been whatever your life has been. On this level of quality, if you can call it that, 
of pressure and temptation, this was enormous. And so much hung on it. And Jesus knew that. Because if he did give in to the devil's temptations, the whole creation, the whole salvation plan was gone. It was gone, honestly. He was no better than Adam. He was no better than you and me. He couldn't save us. There's an old hymn. There is a green hill far away. And it says about Jesus on the cross, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. Have you ever heard that line? There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. Jesus was good enough. He was good enough because he didn't sin. He didn't give in. So he could reverse the damage Adam had done. He could save you because when he died, he didn't die for his own sins, he died for your sins and my sins. It is hallelujah. And this is a key part. If he hadn't won here, the plan would have been ruined. It was vital. What a great saviour. What a great salvation. Let's talk about the second question. What really is sin? Now, I think we do have to talk about that today because the word sin is now misunderstood. I mean, we, we tend to think of actions, bad actions, which is fair enough, so, but it's not the whole story. So if we look at this, we think, well, is this really a sin? When he's very, very hungry to turn the, bread, uh, the stone into bread for himself, is that a sin? I mean, it's not mass murder. It's not child abuse. He's not robbed the bank of 10 million quid. He's not even telling lies and committing adultery. And, you know, is this sin? Is he being tempted, I mean, to sin? Well, we have got to do some work because we've got to understand what sin is and why this is important. What happens to Jesus is important, but also for us to understand why it's important for us. You see, as I said, we use the word, probably mostly the words used ironically or humorously today. So, um, you know, uh, people might say it was a sin to have two chocolate cakes or an extra chocolate cake or something. Or, um, you know, I, I, well, I, I probably this is out of fashion now, but when I was a school teacher many years ago, I've heard boys say, Whoa, sinner! Whoa, sinner! When somebody got something wrong in the class or was naughty. They might shout that. I'd probably shout worse than that at each other nowadays. But, I, I, and then I noticed a few years ago, very recently, maybe within a couple of years, a television program called It's a Sin. And just because it had the word sin, I thought, I wonder what that's about. Look, it was about gay lifestyle, I think. I never watched it as a series. But, but it was, again, obviously used ironically and slightly humorously. I mean, it's hardly ever used any other way, the word sin. But the Bible actually talks a lot about sin. And I can tell you now, in all seriousness, it is not a joke. It is not a joke. It's a very important issue. And we've got to understand, what does God mean by sin? I could tell you now, with utter conviction, it is the biggest problem in your life and my life. Hopefully we can say it was when we come to know a Christian, become a Christian, but it still is a problem. And it is the biggest problem in the world. The sin problem. Above all else that's on your news today, because that is usually the fruit of sin. The root is sin. 
So what are we talking about? Well, let's be quick and try and be simple. The simplest definition of sin in the Bible is that it means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Now, what is the mark that is missed? (laughs) The mark that is missed is God's righteousness, but to use simple language and accurate, I hope, it's God's normal for how human beings and he's, as he made them should live. It's how Jesus did live. It's how Adam and Eve were living and should have carried on living in harmony with God, a friend of God, loved by God and loving God and just flowing with freedom in all that God told them to do and not just like some blind obedience but walking in the garden, beautiful in Eden, walking in the garden, talking through what they were doing on God's behalf, ruling the world, bringing hope and happiness and all the rest of it. Walking in the flow of what their relationship with God and sin is the breaking of that. Now, obviously, there's a lot more we can say, and I will say a bit more, but fundamentally, it is the rupturing of our relationship with God. And so sin in practice becomes how we should have lived if we weren't in rebellion and, and sin, if we weren't in rebellion against God. Now, a good summary of that would be the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to go through them all this morning. But if you think of them, if you know anything about them, some of them we'll talk about briefly in a moment are quite hard to imagine keeping. Others, uh, uh, you know, others like it's lying and cheating and stealing and there's some variation as to how bad some people would be at that and coveting and all the rest of it. And we could analyse it all. But really, in practice, they are like a plumb line held up against our lives to show that we're crooked. That's not how you're built. That's not how you're meant to be. That's not how it's meant to be. Jesus summed up the commandments beautifully in Matthew 22. He said, this is a summary, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There you are, that's the mark. How do you do with that? I don't do very well. Let's just keep to Jesus' summary. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbour as yourself. You hit that mark, do you? I don't. Of course you don't. Unless you're a maniac or absolutely narcissistic in some way. Um, Of course you haven't. Nobody does. And that is an important point. God's righteous standard is failed. We miss that mark. Everybody does. Now... We miss by different measures, but none of us get near it. We might, some of us might miss by 300 metres and some by 100 metres, but nobody's near the target. The actual practice of sin does vary, and that isn't irrelevant. There are people who are mass murderers, sadly. There are people who only just keep to a few lies and coveting and perhaps a bit of playing in their minds with adultery anyway and, you know, not obeying their parents and a few... Yeah, yeah, but you're missing the mark. (laughs) You're missing the mark. We all miss the mark. In summary, sin is failing to do what God commands. If God commands to do it and you don't do it, you're a sinner. Sin is doing what God commands us not to do, i.e. steal, lie, covet. If you do what God's commanded not to do, you're a sinner. So am I. Sin is choosing to do something 
that you know is wrong and particularly choosing to ignore God, take no notice of him and belittle him and badmouth him. Sin is a wrong attitude as much as wrong actions and that's where I think we all begin to get it. Things like envy, selfishness, hatred, lust, greed, pride. These are the roots of sin which are rooted in our relationship broken with God. It is literally revelation when people understand this. I mean it. So if you've never seen this this morning, you suddenly begin to get it. I'd be delighted because as you get this, you realize, oh my goodness, I need a saviour. If you think it's just about the actions, you think, well, I'm not as bad as that and that. No, you can find a whole list of people you're not as bad as. I can spend all day telling you people I'm better than. <laughs> Marion, sometimes I do tell Marion all day. <laughs> but that is ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It's a revelation to you when you realise, oh my goodness, I have no hope of getting to God. I am completely out of the park. I'm a sinner. And you know, people do have that revelation. I want to give you one example. Alexander Solzhenitsyn became a Christian. He was brought up atheist culture in in, uh, Russia. And he was under this horrible Soviet communist totalitarian regime. I can't even remember why. I can't remember. I read the book decades ago, Gulag Archipelago. But he ends up in one of uh, Stalin's prison camps for some reason. But there, God met him, actually. And one of the things he saw is this, and it's summed up in this quote. Thank you. It comes from his book. He realized the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. He suddenly saw the problem isn't Stalin, you know, all the rest of it. The problem's in all of us and in me. And it was the beginning of a change in him, hope. You know, sin, its fruit, has devastating, devastating effects. And that's what we obviously see in society, in relationships, in physical things. Sin has, the actions have devastation, devastating effects in nations, wars, and all sorts of things, right down to individuals' lives. But the fundamental problem is our broken relationship with God. That's the fundamental problem. Sin separates us from God. And I am in no doubt that that is the issue of life. And one of the reasons why I am devoted to the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ, and I don't mean an organisation, I mean the people of God, one of the reasons is I believe the best thing you can do for the world in any nation and any culture is preach the gospel and plant churches and build them. Amen. Good ch- It is. I mean, I am not against doing good works. But what I love about CAP is that the gospel comes with it. With all respect, if you just feed people and don't tell them about Jesus, you've just put off the grim day of judgment. Now, I want to do both. I'm not anti. But I'm saying I feel that we must understand that the thing everybody needs is to hear this message about Jesus Christ. And to realize that they are without hope and without God until they're forgiven and changed by the gospel. 
Now you love them, it's not, dis- not horrible to say that, because you love them, you want them to know. Amen? You're not rubbish and you're not judging them and all the nonsense we do. Well, you don't judge me. Well, God will judge you if I don't help you to see you need saving. You need changing. And you can be. That's the point. Jesus went through all this to make it possible. You can be born again. You can be saved. Now, therefore, what... Sorry, slight digression going on, but I believe an important one. What's going on here in Luke 4 is that the devil is tempting Jesus to the root sin problem which is what happened with Adam I mean what's a fruit got to do with it no it's a root that you're turning your back on God he's trying to get Jesus to turn his back on the father to do his own thing they may look three small acts but they are saying I'm going to take care of myself I'm going to seek the spotlight I'm going to put myself first I'm going to look after myself I'm not going to trust my father I'm not going to do it and obey my father I'm going to do it for my own benefit and I'm going to worship in a way that will get me uh, through to a a solution of power which is the temptation about the nations which has no suffering in it Um, because it's not the way I, I mean, I'm not sure how much the devil fully understood, but he was offering a kingdom by worshipping him. We can't get into this this morning, but it's fascinating. The devil is coming at, at Jesus at the root. He's coming fundamental stuff to get him not to trust the Father, not to obey the Father, to please himself, to be self-centered like the devil is and like he's tempted all us into. We live there. And, and, to, and to do it for his own benefit. And to cut corners and not worry about it. And he fails. The devil fails. Because Jesus doesn't take up one of them. Hallelujah. He's going to stay in harmony with the Father. He's going to love the Lord his God with all his heart and with all his mind. He's going to trust his Father in every way. He's going to obey his Father in every way. He is not going to compromise there once. What the Father says, he will do. What the Father does, he will follow. Where the Father goes, where the Father brings him, he will follow. Wonderful Saviour, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And when you understand that, that helps you to understand why it is such a great salvation. And how you can get saved. I can't resist it. I'm going to be about another five or ten minutes. But I can't resist just giving you an understanding of that from two scriptures. And, and if you're not a Christian this morning, just listen to these. Just listen to them. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it so beautifully. It's about God. He, the he is God. He made the one who did not know sin. We are re- learning that's Jesus. <laughs> he made Jesus who did not know sin, to be sin for us. That's what happened on the cross. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing? Do you see how amazing that is? Jesus took my filth, my rebellion, my sin, and it was put on him. It was God's plan. It wasn't my plan. God initiated it. He did it. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for me so that in him I can have his righteousness. I can be seen like this wonderful man who never once compromised and sinned. And here's another verse, just how we need to act, if you like. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. 
If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a verse! You could spend all day on that verse. If you're a Christian and you've sinned, and we do sin, we still slip up. We shouldn't, but we do. We don't have to, but we do. We're not yet in heaven, not yet in glory. If we admit it, if you like, confess it, repent, like Steve was talking about last week, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have prayed that verse more times than I could count, thousands of times in my life. Thank you, Jesus. I believe that verse. As a Christian, I've prayed it. But you can apply it to your life. You've never known Jesus. You apply that today. You come and do that. And you'll find a complete change, radical in yourself. Let's, let's spend just a few moments on the last question. It won't be long. Is the devil real? I have to give it a little few moments because, again, we struggle today with some of these things. Sin, I've talked about, but this can be a struggle as well. You see, many modern, uh, what we might call liberal theologians, will say that all that took place here in Luke 4 is that in his mind, Jesus was tussling with what sort of Messiah he should be. Jesus was off in the desert sort of struggling, wondering what sort of Messiah he should be. Now, there is some battle in the mind. I'm going to concede that. But it's very, very unsatisfactory, and I would say fundamentally wrong, and doesn't do justice to the Scriptures at all, to say that. It is a materialistic assumption. It is a viewpoint of the last 150 years or more that there isn't anything supernatural, that, that, that it's all material, only what you can see materials. And it's one of the devil's tricks, all right? There is a supernatural world. There is a God. There are angels and there are demons. And what the Bible says is true. And yes, there is a tussle in Jesus' mind because these temptations do have a certain pattern of coming at him. But the whole context here is very clearly written as a person-to-person -person conflict. There is a real devil with real intelligence and real schemes who will try and trip you up. And we need to be sober and watchful and vigilant. The devil and his angels are full, uh, and his demons are fallen angels. There's a whole story there. Again, we haven't got time to dig into it, but you can find bits in the Bible about it. But these, are, these creatures, and they are creation, they are creatures, not equal to God, they are impermanent, irreversible, in their case, rebellion against God. And their desire is always to destroy and spoil what God's doing. That was true in the beginning with creation, and it's true still. They still love just to spoil his right. Don't think Satan is funny or there's some good side to him. That is also a delusion of the devil itself, himself. Listen. The devil here is not interested in Jesus' hunger. He's not interested in him having a good meal. He's not sorry for him. Oh, go on. Have something to eat. You look thin. You look hungry. He might have said it like that. 
But that's in, he's not remotely interested. His interest is in ruining Jesus. And that is how he operates with you and me. It may look attractive. It is never for our good. It is never, God's ways are good. The devil's ways are bad. It is binary, actually, when it comes to this sort of thing. And frankly, we are fools, and we all do it, when we think that what we're being tempted to, that is clearly contrary to God's will, is clearly uh, defying him, and it's clearly anti-God in some way, particularly let's stick with the clear things, we are fools if we think ultimately that'd be okay. That's good for me. It's not good for you. Never good for you. And, and, and Satan has no interest in your good. His interest is to destroy. He is a liar and destroyer. That's his motivation. That's his modus operandi. And we have to be aware of that and alert. But here's a couple of other things. The devil can only tempt and suggest things like he does here. He can't make you do it. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. He might have very cleverly tempted you, but you do, he can't make you do it. He couldn't make Jesus do it. He put all the pressure and lined it all up. There can be all sorts of pressures, all sorts of opportunities, all sorts of false ideas and lies and doubts. And of course, we are already a bit half uh, uh, weakened because of our history and because of who we are in the flesh. So I'm not saying anything. I've fallen for sin. I'm not pretending it's... But fundamentally you do not as a Christian particularly you do not have to give in to temptation just to say the devil rarely comes in an obvious form and, and all through I'd love to spend longer on this but all through history Christian writers have speculated what form did the devil come to Jesus I, I, I mean you don't know I mean angels are the original shift, uh, shapeshifters honestly they can they good angels do as well they don't come always with big big wings and bright white lights you read the bible they can they can come in different forms and the devil can do that and and my favorite on that speculation is that possibly the devil appeared certainly at the beginning as like a a, a holy figure like a rabbi or a, a hermit who was himself uh fasting in the desert and he kept whoa you know i've heard you're the son of god Wonderful. It was wonderful what I heard. I, I, I watched the baptism from a distance. Amazing that. Amazing. Because if you're God's son, you don't need to carry on all this starving business. You could just turn those stones into bread now, couldn't you? I mean, I'm slightly caricaturing, but it doesn't mean he turned up. He did not turn up dressed in red with horns, <laughs> blowing sulfur out and say, turn these stones to bread. No way. That's not how it works. The Bible says he can come as an angel of light. He wants to get you to false, believe false stuff, false teaching, lies, truth. Now, he can intimidate. He can come as a roaring lion. And he's quite open to that because one of his tools is fear. It's a big tool. Fear and fear of death. So he can come violent. He does violence very well. And he can come full on. But that probably isn't his modus operandi here and it possibly isn't mostly with us but we need to be like Jesus was and this we will finish on men and women and this is the simple line to remember who were full of the who are full of the word and full of the spirit because that's how Jesus was able to deal with him not because he was super clever or he spotted this was a phony thing I'm not sure it's like that Jesus 
was full of the word. So when he was tempted to do something contrary to the word, he knew immediately, that's not what God wants, I'm not going to do it. He was also full of the spirit. We're told that several times. And so he was flowing along, if you like, a bit in harmony with the Father. And I'm sure, in Jesus' case, and it can be for you, he was aware with his Noah on the inside, K-N-O-W-E-R. He knew what was going on. He sensed it. He knew the conflict. He wasn't ignorant of it. But there was a power given to him by the Holy Spirit to be able to stand firm. What what, uh, Paul writes, be strong in the Lord. He writes it in Ephesians 6 in terms of spiritual warfare. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Jesus was strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He was strong in the spirit, which gave energy to him where where he needed it as a human being and was tired and hungry. So there's this combination that the devil cannot get round and is your best way to win. You're full of the word and you're full of the spirit. And how do you do that? Well, it's straightforward, but it's not always simple. You need to keep reading the Word. (laughs) You need to keep listening to the Word. You keep to keep thinking about it, talking about it, praying it with one another, chat about it with one another. We need to know what God says about things. Sometimes we have to work a bit harder than other times. What is the Word? And then we need to go on being filled with the Spirit. Now, that is the safety me- mechanism. <laughs> I can't, there are a myriad ways you'll be tempted to sin. There are a myriad, diff- I mean, my weaknesses are not the same as your weaknesses. But the principles are the same for all of us as they were for Jesus. Full of the word and full of the spirit. And let's finish on this encouraging reminder. Actually, the devil is no match for God. And the Bible tells, you, tells us that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now that's actually about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in you. So if you're full of God, full of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to lose in this conflict. So be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Stand on the truths you know and rejoice in all God is for you. Love him as best you can. Say, Lord, I want to please you and I love you. This is about relationship. It's not having a a list of rules and how to avoid breaking them. It's nothing like that. It's walking in relationship with our loving Heavenly Father, full of the Spirit, and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray for you, and while I do, I want the band to come up. So let me pray. Could you all stand, if you can stand? Sorry, that means if you can't stand, you're welcome to stay seated. (laughs) Let's just stand before the Lord. Lord, I thank you, Jesus. I want to worship you for being my great champion. Thank you, Jesus, that you ever came as a man. Thank you that you took on all the restrictions, all the constrictions that meant for you, that you laid aside all that you could have taken with you. And you sort of laid aside, just, you were stripped down to become a man, as it were, and a, a servant. And Lord, you went through physical pain, hunger, heat, f- sort of tiredness aches and pains from walking too much and cut your feet on stones in the desert. 
Lord, you understand what it is to live in this sin-sick world and have a subtle enemy who can come at you at your lowest point or even in a weird way after your highest point when you're not thinking. And you understand what that is, Lord. And yet you won. (laughs) Lord Jesus, strengthen this people. And I want you to strengthen me, Lord. I'm putting myself with them. (laughs) Strengthen us all, Lord. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Lord, may there be a fresh anointing on us as we go into the week ahead, as we face the battles, as we walk through the wilderness, as we feel the heat, as the devil sort of prowls round us. Lord, will you make us strong in you? Lord, give us the words to fight back, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Give us the the right answers to Satan's wicked temptations. Give us the truths that destroy the lies that he fires at us and holds us with. Lord, we want to be men and women who are victorious. We want to follow you, Jesus. We want to come out in the strength of the Spirit and go on to rejoice in all you've called us to do. As you ended, Lord, we want to return to our daily work, return out on Monday in the power of the Spirit and, Lord, go and bring hope and life to everyone we meet. That there is hope in this sin-sick world and it's in you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen.